What's up, everyone? Happy Tuesday. Great to be back here on Demand Gen Live. A couple quick announcements before we get started. For any of those that attended the uh, the Dave Gerhardt event last week on community, that's also been published on the podcast. That was a great event. We had over 100 people live and a topic that is super relevant and people should be thinking about and considering for 2022. So feel free to check that out on the podcast. And we do the event with Dave every Thursday, the first Thursday of every month at 12 p.m. Eastern. So the next one, I think, is on... I'm guessing here, but I think it's December 1st or December 2nd. Maybe someone can confirm that in the chat, but it's coming up. Um, December 2nd. Thursday, December 2nd will be the next one. And then the other announcement is that um, we are hiring at Refine Labs. So anyone that's interested in joining, we're hiring directors of demand gen, performance marketers, copywriters, art directors, creative directors, designers. Got a lot of people that we're looking for. So if you think that you got the skills, we'd love to... uh, talk about what would we like to join here. So feel free to shoot me a LinkedIn DM or apply on LinkedIn or otherwise. And it's funny when we think about hiring, because recently, uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I think from a LinkedIn analytics standpoint, we crossed over 50 employees here, which has driven a lot more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Which has driven a lot more spam into my inbox. I must have crossed into, you know what I mean? Now we're in the 50 to 200 employee band. So all the people that are have that as their targeting criteria. A lot of bad cold email going around. So be on the lookout for that. Moving into the topics here. This one has been interesting. I've actually been getting a lot of questions on this, both from people that work with our customers, but also just, just a bunch of people that I interact with. And the topic is how to use data to optimize content and creative. And then I'm putting a little parentheses here. Hint, it's not A-B testing because... You know what B2B marketers do. Anything you want to do. Hey, should we use this color or this color? Should we use this text or this text? Should we send them to this landing page or that landing page? I don't know. What's A-B tested? (laughs) The answer that everyone puts through. And so what I see, both on the content and the creative side, is I see people overanalyzing quantitative data, underanalyzing qualitative data. The second piece is that they spend so much time analyzing stuff that it prevents them from moving forward and actually making stuff, like actually producing. And so I want to like give people a couple examples, like in, in my content, for instance, if I did the analysis, like a lot of the, like a lot of B2B SaaS companies do on my content post every day, I would put out a post like I did yesterday, cause I didn't have one today, put out a post like I did yesterday. And I would look at the likes, or the, or the reach and be like, and that would be the main determiner of whether or not the post was successful. Or I would have like a UTM type of tracking link in there and I would track stuff. But if you actually understood the dynamics of the LinkedIn platform, you would know that a lot of the d- dynamics that impact reach and things have nothing to do with the content. The actual has nothing to do with the actual message. The headline in the video, the top bar that you see on mine matters a ton. The first line of text that I use matters a ton. The actual body copy and how long it is matters a ton. What time I posted at, what day I posted at, whether somebody that has a lot of followers comments on it in the first hour, all of those things will impact reach and engagement and has nothing to do with the actual content, which can lead people to think that certain things are better than they are. 
And so what we what I've been recommending to people and what we need to get to is looking at a lot more qualitative indicators in the content and being able to understand your customers well enough that you can move without data all the time, that you can keep producing, that you can keep going. And so, yeah, that's what I'm trying to help people understand what I see. And if we'll move into like the paid side is people want to A, B test everything. So they take like one color and one color and they just keep like, they literally keep testing meaningless stuff. So they run A-B tests to collect meaningless data for the sake of testing things. And what we should be doing instead is we should be testing themes, messages, like overall just making stuff. And I say testing, but it's literally just build a lot of stuff, run it, let the data and the qualitative tell you what to do, and then just keep going. I feel like people need such a scientific perfect answer about what to do next and marketing just isn't like that it's really the art that drives marketing i know a lot of people want to a lot of vendors want to make it seem like it's just one big math equation but there's a ton of ways to win you can do you can do paid facebook you can do paid linkedin you can make a podcast you can do events you can run direct mail there's a ton of different ways to win and then inside of each of those tactics there's a million different ways that you can approach it and so we need to get back to a place where we can be creative, where we can try things that we that make us a little bit scared, that we know what we think may not work. We need to be able to do a lot of those things. And I recognize that in some companies, in many companies, marketing isn't put in a position to be able to do that. But from a content and creative side, I, the, the, the main take home I want to get is that this is a understand customers and then move and then use data as it comes to optimize the strategy. But I feel like the, where, what we're in is a little bit of a start and stop. Do something, stop and analyze for whatever, two days, two weeks, two months, and then do something else and then stop and analyze. And it needs to be a little bit more, I think it, the best practice would be a, little, uh, a lot more fluid. I'll pause there and see if people have any questions or we wanna go in a different direction on this topic. Um, I think there's a lot of comments around what are meaningless things to test, what could be valuable things to test. You touched on this a little bit, but it might be good to kind of clarify a little bit, like what are things that people should just not even worry about A-B testing and should just move on from? And then reinforcing, I think, some of the things that are worth testing, maybe not in that A-B format, but the messages and themes. And so... Like what are what are the most meaningless things that that you see people testing that they, that they should just stop doing? I mean, it's not even really like meaningless stuff. It's the idea that like just because one piece of content got more clicks or more likes doesn't mean that it was more effective. Doesn't mean that it helped your buyer learn something better. Didn't guarantee that it meant that it moved them forward more in a, in a buying process. And so I think that we're looking at quantitative data. It's interesting. It just gets into the next topic. So I might just flow into it. Just goes into the idea that we need to start to unlearn outdated B2B marketing principles. Like in social, where what you, we need to do is whether it's paid or organic, because I want people to look at it and then click on my link where I have UTMs, where they go to my landing page and then they scroll down and they fill out my form so I have perfect tracking and everything, like it's Google SEM, like 2009. 
and it's just taken Google's strategy from Google and then moved it into social without thinking about, do we need to have a different strategy here? And so I'm trying to help people unlearn some of the core principles. Like when people talk, when people interview me and ask me, they say like, so you're just like, just driving traffic to the website. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm doing. Like it does result in some website traffic, but the goal is to put the content in the feed where it gets natively consumed, where the message gets consumed. And so the goal is not to drive website traffic from paid social ads, at least for me, some people might think that it's that all of my target accounts know more than they did yesterday about our product or our category. And so optimizing for website visits, I think is something that people need to unlearn, especially when you think about tracking. The next one, interesting enough, is UTM tracking. Yes, you should be using UTMs. I'm not telling that you shouldn't, but that you need them in all cases, I think is something that's an outdated principle, that all advertising needs to be direct response, AKA like if I'm gonna buy this ad, I need to have someone convert so that I can have $50, I can have a lead where I can go back to the CFO and say, I got a, here I got a lead from LinkedIn, here's the UTMs. And so we just need to think a little bit differently inside of B2B. I'll go back to what I was talking about before, which comes down to my content. And another, like another example here. So if I have content and one of them is about like deep, detailed account-based strategies, and I post that on LinkedIn and it only gets 200 likes, and then I post something else that says marketing takes time, and then that one gets a thousand likes, which post was better? Nobody knows. Nobody knows which one was better. Because one single touch point, one single campaign does not make or break the difference in these strategies. It's the accumulation of when people have seen 200 of my LinkedIn posts. They don't remember post 163, but it was the accumulation over time that brought them to post 200, which led them to convert. And so just because something got more likes or more reach or something inorganic or got more clicks or better click-through rate and paid, doesn't mean that it was necessarily more effective. The ABM one or the account-based strategy one that I posted could have been a more effective post. It just resonated with less people because it was a more specific topic. And so this is when we think about like what is worth it and not worth it to A-B test in social, like I think that there's actually like not that much to test. I think that the framework of A-B testing, like one thing against another, we should shift and it should be, we're going to put out things that we think is high quality work and high quality messages. And we're going to collect feedback and data, qualitative and quantitative to make decisions about where to go on an ongoing basis. And so I get a lot of the stuff from the questions that we get here, the comments, the um, messages that I get, people that share my post. I literally, like people sh I post sometimes, some of my posts get shared 50 times in a post. And I'll go in there and look at the copy that somebody else writes when they share my post. How are they sharing it with somebody else? Do they understand what I was saying? Do they? And so these are the details and nuances that B2B marketers never look at. Okay, so then just closing out, we'll get the agenda out of the way and we'll just, <laughs> we'll just be rolling. Because I went on, I, I went through why you need to unlearn some outdated B2B marketing principles. But the topic here was specifically around native content consumption. And so the, t the principles that I mentioned 
we need to get people on our website. It needs to be direct response. We need to have tracking. We need to do all these things are things that are in direct opposition of native content consumption. Because you're not trying to get someone to consume the stuff in the feed because your goal is predicated on whether or not they land on your landing page. And so if you just think about how you consume content in a social network, which is where a majority of B2B buyers get their information on a daily basis, I'm trying, to really, I'm trying to really drive this home for people. B2B buyers use these platforms every single day on their mobile device, many of them for multiple hours a day. And when they use them, they don't often click off and go to other things. Most of the consumption is happening inside the feed. And so you need to adjust your strategy to stay inside of the feed so that the stuff actually gets consumed. And so it's a huge breakthrough in social. And it's just something like, I don't know how many times I talk about this on the podcast, but it's something that I consistently see company pages on LinkedIn, LinkedIn ads, Facebook ads from B2B companies that I think are doing well. I just knocked this stuff over. Facebook and Instagram ads from, I think that from B2B companies that I think are doing well, still make these fundamental mistakes about what their objectives are in social. So just trying to help people understand we, we want to get to a place where there's minimal friction to as many people as possible consuming the information you're putting out. Amanda had a question related to this topic. So I think it's a perfect segue into the AMA to continue on this. So Amanda, I want to bring you on to ask your question about how to influence senior leadership. Yeah, sure. So just a quick follow-up on um, what you were discussing about unlearning outdated B2B marketing and I'm totally bought in, um, but I'm a senior, senior marketing manager. How do I get my director to buy into this and then the CMO to buy into this? And yeah, how is, um, I'm just looking for your advice on influencing from mm -hmm. the bottom up. So I think there's many ways to kind of get this done. One is to share content and information. Something that simple will work. Another one is to figure out what companies they think are doing well, and then look at what those companies are doing and then assess whether you think that they're doing well or not, and then try and guide them to companies that may be more aligned with what you're doing if they're not. A big one here, and the, the main reason why executives, whether it's the director or CMO or CRO or anyone, the main reason why they don't change anything is because they don't believe something is broken. And so helping them, helping them see that whatever is happening right now is either suboptimal, not working, wasting money, way outside of customer acquisition costs. The sales team qualitatively just isn't happy because of what, because of the poor quality of what's being driven. So figure, finding some thing like in there, that you can show them or present with them so they can try and understand those things. And then the last one would be to frame it up with from a customer's perspective, either with one customer in a qualitative interview or a survey or something like that. Those are all methods to help people get on board. So I did that in 2017. Nobody wanted to run Facebook ads at my company. They thought that physicians didn't use Facebook and Instagram. And I just ran a survey to 600 people 
that are our target buyer and said, where do you, I, there was a lot of questions in there, but one of the main ones was, where do you learn about medical technology? And then 65% of people said social media. And then from there, they started putting some budget there. Another follow-up, what are some metrics that you would suggest to replace some of those classic B2B marketing metrics that we look at that still sort of satisfies that we need to hit gold of some kind? Because I think it's a total shift in how we're thinking about things. Mm -hmm. So what are some kind of easy bridge metrics that you Mm -hmm. can start turning their focus towards? Mm -hmm. And so you, you mentioned it in your question, which is like, this is a fundamental shift, right? It's not like we're going to stop measuring click through rate and we're going to change it to this metric. That's not how it works. And so it is a fundamental shift. The way to really get this done, if you want to do native content, if you want to optimize for native content consumption, if you want to have a, have a heavy dark social strategy, which by the way, is where all B2B buying is happening right now. And so if you want to have those things, you actually need to fundamentally change everything about marketing, which looks at it and thinks about attribution differently and looks at marketing based on actual business results, not vanity metrics. And so we help people get aligned on the idea that we're going to look at all the marketing program spend and then just measure that against all of the marketing pipeline and revenue. If we spent $200,000 in marketing this month and we generated $5.5 million in pipeline, and we win that pipeline at 30%, 25%, whatever, you can do the math. Like we spent 200K, we're gonna get a million dollars in revenue and that's a 5X ROI. So let's keep doing it. And if that's where we're at, do we need attribution on that? If we're spending money and we're getting way, most companies are getting a, if they'd be happy to spend 200 and get 200 back, average would be you spend 200, you get 100 back. And we're doing spending 200, getting a million back in revenue. Do we need attribution or is that just something that people have been told? And so if we think about total marketing spend against total marketing outcomes, then from there, it's marketing's job to figure out how, what are the signals that I'm looking for to decide which parts of the 200 are the most effective and which parts of the 200 are the least effective. And some of those you can use software. Some of those you need to use other ways to measure marketing to look at it. And when it comes down to the idea of just looking at paid social, the KPI here is that we have 10,000 target accounts that we're going after. And we just distributed a message about this core feature or integration or differentiating value proposition or whatever. And now all 10,000 accounts know more than they did yesterday about the stuff. And we spent $1,000 on it. And so if you look at just the total cost of doing one sales rep demo from a business standpoint, it costs more than $1,000. And so instead of doing one demo for that cost, we're going to tell the entire market something. And so we need, like, we need to think differently about when, what a modern B2B buying process is, what and when used to be coming from a sales rep, that can now be executed through marketing, right? So instead of having a sales rep do a demo for 30 minutes with one buyer that most likely is not in market to buy right now, instead of doing that, what if we rethought what a demo was? 
it's been a demo for a long time, but what if we, what if a demo wasn't, we sit with a sales rep and we do this, what if it was instead that over a 30 day period of time, we give someone one piece of information every day. And then 30 days later, they know way more about our company, our category and our product. And they probably learned it more effectively than sitting on a demo with a sales rep. And instead of telling one person, we told everyone. And so the KPI that I'm going for inside of paid social is, are we effectively communicating with our market? Is it worth the price that we're paying to communicate with them relative to other things that we spend money on to communicate with people, which the number one is your sales team. And is the marketing dollars that we're doing producing enough revenue to justify the activities? That's really the hard part for, for a lot of companies is actually deploying the money and driving enough results to just justify it that clearly spend over total results. Thanks, Amanda. That was great. That kicked off a good one. All right. We have a good mix of some different questions. So I'm going to bring on some different people and we'll go in a couple different directions here, but there's some good new ones tonight. So Stephanie, bringing you on next, you're on Demand Gen Live. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, how are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, so I, um, I'm actually in a little bit of a different scenario where I actually have leadership that's like, hey, whatever you think is good, do it. And I, I don't spend a lot of time having to worry about attribution. And it's much more for like, you know, strategy for my team and where we should focus. So it's good. How's that going? Like, let's it's help going. some other help it's some people great. out, right? This is how yeah, this I is mean, how I innovated and learned for like two major years of my career is that leadership didn't have these requirements, which allow you to be way more creative and experiment and find way better things that work, right? Like what's going on yeah. for you? Let's get, let's yeah, like through. their motto is fail fast. And so we are just turning and burning and trying to be really flexible and creative, which is exciting and, and keeps it really fun for us. How do you think so it impacts a, your team? Yeah, yeah. And we've grown. I mean, we we are now up to 11. We were at four marketers this time last year. So it's it's been cool. We spent a lot of time in 2021 doing market research, focusing on our ICP and what we understanding from them, how they wanted to consume information from us, from the industry. And two things that really came out of that was that they really, really, and this is B2B stats, they really mm -hmm. want industry leaders, thought leaders outside of vendors to tell them about new technology. And they want peer to peer recommendations, right? So, kind of the two <sighs> things that <laughs> yep. We don't have direct I love control. this. It's like, yeah, it's the exact thesis. <laughs> right. So we are heavily exploring the idea of paid influencer marketing in 2022. And we've gone out and got a couple proposals from different types of companies like a viral nation and who, who really focused in B2C and now are transitioning into paid influencer for B2B. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the quotes range, you know, I got one yesterday for 300,000 for, you know, six months. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious your thoughts on, do you think influencer marketing is something that can be done organically without taking, a, you know, the next year of our life? Do you see benefit to paying an agency to curate these influencers, help them drive the content, get our name out there? Just curious, general thoughts there. I'm personally like a hard no on using agency support right now. Like, you know who the thought leaders are, you know, your customer, and there's not that many. And so this is like getting to know those people and then 
doing manual work to figure out what's important to them to collaborate with them. Yeah. And so like, it could be 500 bucks. It could just be, Hey, you want to speak at our conference? It could be like way more money or something. It can be, it's going to be different for everyone, but I think that you want to go out and try and test it with like five people or redo the, the ICP type of test and say, like, you want to hear from thought leaders, who are your top five? And then just literally like pick out the people that your, that your audience chooses and then start doing content collaboration. I would do that as a rev one. And then as you build a relationship, you can think about making it more like promotional or other things. And would um, you offer to pay them? I would start with content collaboration. And a lot of people will do that for free. If you like pretty much do, do everything right. Hey, you want to come on our podcast? Hey, you want to speak at our event? Those types of things. And then I would start to establish and build a relationship. And then I would, once you have a better relationship, I would think about doing that. So I wouldn't lead with like, Hey, I'll give you 500 bucks to do this. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I think that that's great. I mean, obviously these agencies are promising us the sun and the moon and the stars, right? Um, you know, so they're basically saying like, look, you can spend all of next year trying to do this yourself and really like, you know, it's going to be gritty and you're going to have to put a lot of manual work into it. Or we can take a defined process that we already have, apply it to your influencers that you pick out and we'll do the legwork for you. So that's just different than B2C. Like they're going to go out and try and get like a thousand different people that all have 5,000 followers, which is a ton of manual work and things like that. So their database, their process matters when you're doing scale. In B2B, you're probably looking at 10 people, like you know who they are and you can do it, right? And so I don't think that you need the agency there. If it was like, if you're selling a sauna or Slack, like maybe, you know what I mean? But I doubt you are. We're not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we've been a little bit wooed by (laughs) the uh, thought of, you know, going viral. So Mm-hmm. I don't know and if the, that's really the, the stars for us. I mean, do you think that going viral for a B2B SaaS company should be something you aspire to? Or is this like, let's be realistic? Um, no, there's such a value in actually doing it. Like yeah. not having someone else do it, but actually do it. Because the things that you learn there will teach you things and sh- introduce you to tactics and things in the future that you wouldn't see if you had someone else do it. Right. Yeah. And so like... When I was doing influencer marketing, trying to sell $60 blankets, like, and I would go in and I would try and go for people that had a hundred thousand followers and then people that had 50,000 followers and people that had 10,000 followers. And I saw what the price differences are and things like that. And I was like, wow, I just want to stay here with people that have between four and 8,000 followers. And so, and you just, you learn things. And then I figured out like, what's the best way to send an intro? How am I going to target those people? And then Funny enough, like five years later, you start using it again in a different way. And so I'd just recommend the learning and the organizational capability and learning that you build will come back and help you in other ways in the future. So that's why I recommend doing it on your own. I was just saying, do you think it's possible or or something that you should aspire to, you know, when you're B2B SaaS to to go viral? I think that going viral gives you like, you know what I mean? Like people could argue that my posts have gone, I've had posts that gone for like two, three million views, right? Yeah. It's not like the whole, and that happened in 2019. It's not like my whole world changed the next day. The next day you have to go back and you have to make another post and that one doesn't go viral and it hurts. 
you don't make a post go viral and then you don't have to you can just sit back and do things or just because one goes viral everyone goes viral and so there's way more value in consistent output that people like my videos get 20,000 views like a losing value for a lot of people that go out there and pump up vanity metrics every once in a while and get a million likes on a post or a million views on a post but I get those 20,000 every day from exactly who I'm going after. And it's a six minute video view, yeah. not an impression of a text post. And so I am definitely in the camp of consistency over time and the consistency drives the more opportunities to go viral. And so I think the consistency, and then as you do that, you have more opportunities to go viral and you learn and build capabilities so that your learning could go into another channel things like that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That was some um, really interesting research that I would encourage listeners and people that are attending live to do. Do you know what the exact question you asked was? Oh, on the, on the market research? Yeah. We had a, a subset of the panel that was familiar with the brand. So you had to have known our brand in some way, shape or form. And then we said, how did you become familiar with the brand? And then offset of that was what are you listening to when you make buying decisions? What mm -hmm. are you watching when you make buying decisions? Um, and we just kind of went down that path. And then we're following that up next with qualitative, where we're going to actually interview them, talk about specific podcasts, those types of things. Again, we have the benefit of our leadership is bought into that. They're like, mm -hmm. spend the money, figure it out. So it's, it's nice. Mm -hmm. Everyone should do that survey. And this is not a unique answer. When you do the survey, you're going to get, I want to get information from thought leaders that aren't vendors and peer recommendations. And those are the sources of information that your buyers trust the most. And where do they get that information from those people? Social networks, content platforms, communities, word of mouth. Yeah. And it was Dark actually social. really easy to sell, you know, our strategies for 2022 around social and content. Once we told them like, look, this is where they're getting the info from. We don't even have to worry really about these other things that we were doing because they're not even looking there. So that just made it a lot easier. It's so fascinating. Like asking your customers and getting the insight can completely, if you follow what they're saying, it can completely change your strategy. Thank that you. That was awesome. Thank you. Great segment, Stephanie. All right, Mateo, you had a fun question. I'm going to bring you on next to ask live. And we got a lot of new questions that'll that have popped up. So we'll just keep the AMA going. Mateo, you should be on. What's up? Where are you calling from? LA. Chris, first, I want to say this is actually my third time in a row of being here. There's so much value here. So just thank you for doing these. So I appreciate it. My question to you either. is around video. Where do you rank video in your arsenal of content marketing weapons? And obviously video, it requires a lot more effort and cost to produce. So how are you like maximizing the video content that you create? So you're not just spending, you know, $30,000 on a video and using it once and never touching it or using it again. Not all video needs to be $30,000 and expensive and take a long time to create, right? Like I post videos on LinkedIn that probably cost less than a hundred dollars total to make. And we do it a lot and it's impactful and has basically driven a huge growth in our business over the past two years since we've been doing it. And so when you think about video, it's a video as a medium, a communication medium, you can have video, you can have audio, you can have text, 
And so out of those three, I typically find that video is highly effective in communicating on social networks where people tend to consume things. It's about being selective on how you produce the video, how much you're spending on it, how it's being used and what the objectives are. And so we don't often recommend that companies go out and spend $30,000 on a video so that we can run it for ads. We don't. We typically start with, if we're, and it's different for paid and organic, I'll talk through both. On the paid side, we're going to start with static images because you get a high volume of variation. And honestly, it just drives, it just drives results, right? And so instead of like fumbling around with some video, then we're going to make one video and put it out there. We're able to make like 50 different messages and static, Im static image creative with messages that we can go out and get it to the market, get feedback, learn, drive some results. And as that's working and driving, then we use our stacking growth methodology, which is that as that the static images are working, then we're going to start testing video and low production video animation, like a five thousand, you know, three, five, seven thousand dollar animation on a thirty thousand or more live action video. And as we start to have success with those, then those become part of the mix. And so now you have a bunch of static images coming out that we know are working that are have different messages and things like that. And now we have an animation coming into the mix that's working at some specific frequency. And then we might go out and make a bigger video and that bigger video would go into social, but it would also mainly be used in YouTube and other channels like the website. And so it's about your question seems specific to high production video and it's about figuring out when is appropriate to create that video. And I think that you want to have a pretty, pretty robust engine of content creation and results before you would go out and do that. I just hear horror stories of companies that go out and spend, they do a $50,000 project with an agency. They spend $40,000 on a video, $10,000 on media. It doesn't work. And then they're like, Oh, what the hell? It didn't work. It's like the strategy was wrong. You should test way more, way more variations of creative and you should spend allocate more to media too. And then on the, uh, on the organic side, this is a process of just figuring out what is the best, like best method to communicate. If you can do video, I think it's highly effective because I do video and text at the same time, right? Like I have a video and I also write a pretty lengthy text post that could be a post on its own. And so I typically get like often dual consumption of both the whole video and then I add additional context in, inside the text. So I would say on most platforms, organic, I think that video is preferred, but you got to make sure that whoever you have creating the content, it works for them too. And then okay. making sure that you have a, a process for being able to do it in a fast, inexpensive way. Thank you. Any, any follow up on that? Like yeah, maybe I guess. go a little bit deeper on what you were specifically hoping to get out of it. Cause it seemed like you, your question was pretty targeted. Is this something you're considering doing that you want to go deeper into? Yeah, no. Um, cause I'm trying to build my agency, um, social media marketing, specializing in, in, in a heavy emphasis in video. And so a lot of challenges that I get is just, you know, companies, they don't want to produce, like you said, like super high quality videos or spend a bunch of money on like a single video. So how do I get them to see the value and like just hopping on TikTok or producing things maybe on their phones and kind of guiding them through that process as opposed to like spending a bunch of money on some super, super high quality things, you know? Are you trying to sell to B2B companies? Yeah, B2B, SaaS. Yeah. 
I could tell you for sure that it's going to change when companies and executives continue to wake up to what's going on in social. But as it stands right now, B2B companies dramatically underspend on creative and content for social. They love buying ads. They love spending $300,000 a month on ads and they spend no money on content. They invest no time in the research, customer research, and they spend no money in creative and they just burn money. And so eventually people will wake up to that and we're going to be publishing research on what the appropriate allocation should be for every media dollar, how, how, many, how much money should be spent on the creative production and the user research. And that's so that will be forthcoming. But trying to sell high production video as a standalone offering into B2B software companies, I think is there's companies that have built businesses off of it, but it's not the business that I would build right now. You think and it so, should be more of like a content, social media videos, or how would you like label it as, I guess? I'll put together a business plan for you. If I were you, what I would do is I would blend it with influencer marketing and frame it into user-generated content. And so your offering would, once they identify who those people are, you would go out and you would help the thought leader create mm. a user-generated content video, and that would be the deliverable I'm just trying to help you like look at ideas that are more differentiated and also more like uh, forward thinking. Appreciate it. The idea that I gave you might not be the exact idea, but you, you kind of, there's some fodder to think on a little bit. Definitely. Appreciate it. Cool. Good to see you. Likewise. All right. I'm bringing on Kate next so she can get on with her evening and get her question in. So come on, Kate. You're on live. I snuck you in. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, just for the record, I'm literally the prime example of how dark social works because a girlfriend told me about Refine Labs. And so I followed Chris on LinkedIn and then I saw a video and then I started listening to his podcast. And now here I am. You're not in our so, CRM, that's for sure. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I'm what I'm trying to figure out is how you how you convince your sort of marketing management or the the powers that be to double down on a specific part of your strategy that you think is more effective without the attribution to that particular channel. Like if I can say that all of my marketing activities contribute to X amount of revenue, how do I get them to put more money into say content creation for LinkedIn? If I think that that's a channel that's doing really well with my ICP without that attribution. Yeah. So in some companies, like if you work here at Refine Labs, like we don't need this stuff because it's really fucking obvious what channels are <laughs> driving the impact, right? Like, so companies out there like have been told that they need attribution in order to make decisions, but it's literally just a made up story. There's a lot of ways that you can measure which channels are going. And so the most clear comp to having direct attribution that you would get in like a visible would just be asking people on the form, how'd you hear about us? And then using that as a secondary, it doesn't replace visible attribution. It, it is a separate way of looking at it of what created the demand. And so we do that. And at the moment, like I think the answer is 46% of our qualified pipeline comes from LinkedIn. They self-report that I heard, I heard about your company on LinkedIn and now I'm in your pipeline. And I think 60% of our revenue comes from LinkedIn. And another probably 25% of qualified opportunities come from a podcast. And another whatever 20% come from communities. 
and another 15% come from word of mouth referrals. And so it just becomes very clear as you create this, that like, wow, 80, 90% of our, what our buyers are saying are driving, creating the demand and driving this pipeline for us is not getting measured by software. And so you could use that, right? So I would put, how did you hear about us on the form immediately? It's going to give you different stuff than what attribution software says. And you'll get some ammo in there for if your stuff is working. The next one could be like, I'm trying to get creative here because I give a lot of the same answers. So um, if your company uses Gong, I would think about like trying to listen or analyze first calls of inbound inbound opportunities and see what people are saying within the first five minutes. Or maybe there's a way to programmatically analyze those and see if people mention podcasts, LinkedIn, other things. And then I would just be in the channel knowing. So there's like a lot of a lot of companies that are with us that it's like three months ago, you were doing 500K a month in, in website pipeline. And now it's 2 million. And the main difference that we did is we started spending $50,000 a month on Facebook and Instagram. And so we can stop doing this for right now and spend a month trying to prove that it's working or we can just go with it and keep trying to grow our pipeline more. And so, and it's sad that a lot of companies will be like, no, let's stop. Let's actually stop running these ads and figure out how to measure this the way that we've been told we need to measure stuff. So um, I think the number one is the self-reported attribution. It literally is giving us crazy insights. Okay. Can what have I you been trying to, what, what things have you tried so far? So we're not a SaaS product. We're um, a hardware product. So it's sort mm-hmm. of a one-time sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, a paid ad strategy that needs a refresh for sure. But it's one of those things where it's been working well enough that nobody really wants to touch it. <laughs> they brought me in as a content copywriter, but because of the way that I view marketing and, and I've been a BDR, so I'm more of a, a product marketer. And so I'm looking at the sort of whole strategy of the thing and saying, okay, like these are kind of effective, but what we need to start doing is become a thought leader in this industry so that people, when they type in, you know, how do you do X, Y, Z, our stuff comes up. And if they see ads for that, great. But like, I want to start pointing them to our content and I want to start doing what you've done with your LinkedIn, with my, like my CEO's LinkedIn and my VP of marketing or VP of sales LinkedIn. Like I want to start building that focus, but I kind mm-hmm. of have people telling me that our ICP doesn't live on LinkedIn and I, I don't know how do to a survey. That. Yeah. You could do a survey. You could literally just target the exact people, run $50 in ads, and then just show based LinkedIn will give you the data of the exact types of companies and job titles of the ads that get served to. So just literally pick like, I'm going only after chief revenue officers at companies that are 100 to 1,000 employees, and then run the LinkedIn ads, and it'll tell you exactly how many chief revenue officers at those types of companies actually see the ads. You'd get the, you'd get the metric reach. And then you could go into the LinkedIn demographic settings and you can see how many of those people had that exact job title and it'll tell you. And so you could do a survey, which would be way more work to get the same exact data, but you could get a survey. People will tell you, do you you use LinkedIn to learn about business principles? How often do you do it? You could run the media to just say, hey, people with this job title at our ICP saw these ads, which means that they were on LinkedIn, which means they use LinkedIn. Or you could just use common sense, which is that 
B2B buyers are using these channels all the time. Okay. Thank you. Happy to help. Hope you enjoy the rest of your night. Great, great to have you here. Thanks, Kate. All right. Uh, Tim, you're up next. Welcome to the show. So the question was really about the KPIs. It sounds like what you're encouraging is keep kind of tracking your attributable actions, but recognize the importance or relative importance of those that are easily trackable versus those that are more dark and less easily tracked. And that's where you get the real value because you're looking at the end of the line. But the problem is that that takes place a lot later. So what's the lag between you know, implementing all of this great stuff and being able to turn around to your higher ups and say, well, okay, I know it's been six months since we've been doing this, but here's the results. Like what's the lag that you can expect realistically? I think this totally depends on the quality of the execution, but let's just pretend that the execution was good. There's an interesting exercise that I did recently to try and explain this to people. And so I'll talk through what I did. I took a tool called Dream Data, which was able to analyze the first attributable touch from an account and when it came. And then I could also look at when that account actually filled out a form and became an opportunity in our pipeline. And then I looked at how long it became close one. And so the part that people measure right now is sales cycle length, when the person came inbound to when the deal closed. What they're not measuring is when was the first touch from that account on my website until they entered pipeline, which is there's this big part of a buying journey that's happening that you're not measuring and it takes time. And what we find is that it's typically somewhere between one and a half and two times your average sales cycle length from the first time an account hits your website until they actually convert because they need to research. They need to understand the problem. They need to get their coworkers on board. They need to validate with peers. These things take time. They like think that they're going to buy stuff and then they leave and they go and have other priorities. This happens all the time. And people just don't have enough of a respect because they just think that it's 2010 where you just like cold call someone and then you just start a sales process. And so there's this big chunk of time. My estimate would be it's one and a half times your sales cycle length, but you could do the exact same thing. It'll, in Dream Data, it would work retroactively and they have a free plan. Just give Dream Data a pretty good shout out right there. But uh, they do have a free plan. So you could literally install that, set it up, and then see how long it's taking between when the account hits your website for the first time to when they actually convert. And then you have a pretty good estimate of how long it should take. Now, we do other things during that time, right? So going out and creating new demand takes about amount of time, one to two sales cycles. So if you're just running, if you just add Facebook, it might take a little bit of time. But we're in there doing conversion rate optimization, Google ads, general lead handoff optimization and pipeline optimization, cutting out bad lead sources, adding review sites, doing all these captured demand tactics to create a much bigger lift in the short term while you go out and create demand. And so to answer your question simply, I would expect one, one to two sales cycle lengths for cycles that are less than 90 days. All right. That's helpful. Thank you. It does take some time and the self-reported, it's a lagging metric in, if you look at it one way, it's a leading metric if you look at it another way, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that feels to me like one of the biggest shifts is like everyone is so KPI obsessed with these attributable leading numbers. KPI that, obsessed. Yeah. yeah. And so, 
so shifting away from that is really hard. You got to unlearn outdated stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, it is really hard. A lot of the companies that we work with struggle with it initially. And so they're looking for something right away, right? I push a button. Yeah. What am I going to measure to make me feel safe that it's going to work? And like the metrics are meaningless, have been created to make you feel safe and happy about spending money in a certain way, typically by like ad platforms or vendors. And so I think we just need to think critically about what are the, what are the principles that are still relevant today? I see a lot of B2B marketers going around and I think that just questioning some of the things that we currently do and know would be helpful. Cool. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Good question. I don't think we've talked about that before. That was a good one. All right. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Paulina, welcome to the show. You had a few questions you can ask live. I did. Thanks, Megan. And nailed it on my name. <laughs> Not many people do. Hey, Chris. Hey. Um, just like uh, the caller right before Tim, I am uh, I am a fellow deep social <laughs> diver and mm -hmm. follower for my first time here. Um, so thanks for taking the question. The question is, what are your thoughts on multiple languages on a company's LinkedIn page? So the context is we're a German startup, been around for about seven years, have a very decent following in the doc region, quickly expanding globally and the U.S is our number one priority at the moment. So my role is basically growth and demand gen here in the US. I'm plugged into the mothership in Germany um, for my demand gen team, content marketers, performance marketers, et cetera. And one of our CEOs is an influencer of sorts in the German market and the entire DAC region. So mm -hmm. he posts a lot of interesting, very quality content in German. And a lot of the English language content is um, more of the fluffier sort of, you know, we get an award for this and that, or, mm -hmm. you know, we turn seven, like, look how great we are, which is good, I think, as far as, you know, just awareness. But I feel like we could really benefit from more of the meat of the German language. I'm just wondering, in general, what your thoughts are in mixing the languages on one page. On a company page or on your CEO's okay. profile? On, on a company page to which our CEO and many other people from the company post. Yeah. And so you're asking about mixing the languages because it also feels a little bit like you mentioned the content feels a little bit fluffier in English. So is this a content strategy okay. question or just generally like, can you post in both languages? I think both. I mean, it's mm -hmm. definitely, you know, content, <laughs> content driven. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering if how much value does does two or more languages on a on a company LinkedIn page bring in addition to the content strategy? I don't know if this is the right answer for you, but I'm just telling you what I would do. I would start to siphon the German followers directly to the CEO's page and have the CEO be mainly for German. You could take content from in German and still post on your company page. And you can in the settings of the post say, I only want to give this post to my followers that are in Germany. But the company page would become more of an English one. And then if that's your primary market, and then I would start to use subtitles initially and test using subtitles of your CEO's videos to see if that would work as an initial way to go 
in English. Um, you could also use paid media for some of these things in English to guarantee it. But that's like off the cuff the way that I would do it is I would I would move a lot of the followers in German to the CEO's page. And then I would move the company page directly to English. Alternatively, if your CEO is fluent in English, then you could think about having the, you could do the opposite. Is have him do the content in English. Yeah. And primarily go for the U S and I'm, I'm aware that a lot of people in Germany, it's not like totally like a custom in Germany to be in English, but most people in Germany speak English. But right. they, I know that they prefer it in German. It feels a little bit foreign if it's not. But those are a couple of the options. I wouldn't mix the languages on a page. I think it, like, at least for me, when that starts to happen to me, I unfollow the pages. Like, I don't want content in my, in my feed that's in Japanese or a language that I can't read. Makes sense. Any follow-up? What were you thinking about doing? I, I think it's, yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's, I'm in this position where basically, you know, I need to make the recommendations and also at the same time be sort of careful how that comes across because that, yes, our CEO does speak English and he, there's fantastic content that's produced in English as well. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels to me as a user that that does get a little bit confusing sometimes. Sometimes I see a post that comes through in English. Sometimes it's in German. And very mm-hmm. often I want to know what it is in German because it's always you know some fun video um, where two people talking and laughing and I'm like, translate and translate. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that one page coming through multiple languages can be very confusing. Alternatively, you could create two different ones. So you could have like well, XYZ company, GMBH or whatever the acronym is. I don't know what it is. And then you could have another one, which is XYZ Company USA or English or just there's a couple of ways that you can do it, but it creates, uh, spreads out your resources. It creates twice as much work. So that's not yeah. one that I recommend, although a lot of companies choose to do that one. Got it. Thank you, Chris. Good to see you. All right. We'll keep rolling. I've got Shannon. You're up next. Thanks for your patience. Welcome to the show. You're on Demand Gen Live. Hey, all. Thank you for taking my question. Um, Yeah, so, hey, Chris. So, yeah, we are a holistic solution. So, essentially, each feature and offering that we have is basically targeting, like, a different persona. And each department head of of these different segments of our business is basically a subject matter expert. And Mm -hmm. in typical startup fashion of, like, growth-phase startup, everyone's very busy. (laughs) So, I'm just trying to kind of get a feel for how maybe you guys have been able to get them to partake in the content creation process. So I have a couple of ideas, but would love to hear kind of where your head's at. And just, just for instance, like I was thinking of hosting like a open office hour type of session. And I had asked like our head of customer success and she was like, ask me to, to of next year. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just kind of like hard to get that by in upfront if we're just testing things because they haven't done anything like this to date. So talk me through a little bit deeper, like, so everyone, is it different, like business unit managers, or is it just people in the company that are busy? They're basically like different business unit managers. So, I mean, further context, we are like a cross-border e-commerce solution. So basically- Do you have have a ton of different products? 
it's all one product, but there's yeah. different features that basically, so like someone like a digital marketer would be interested in versus someone in shipping and logistics would be interested in. Does that okay. make sense? Very different. Yeah. So you're selling to the same account, but different buyers with different Correct. features. Yeah. Okay. And so you want to have these people that have different experiences in your company to participate and help in thought leadership content. Yes, ideally. Yeah. But everyone is too busy. Right. <laughs> everyone knows what too busy means, right? It means it's not a priority. Exactly. It means that they think that other things are more important, um, which is a common pushback that you hear from people that aren't in marketing that don't understand the power of marketing when it's executed properly. A couple of the things that I would consider, I wouldn't go for everyone. I would try and find your person okay. or two and see if they want to kind of like just pave the way kind of deal, which focus is you in and it gets someone that has a little bit more of a commitment level, not that they're going to do one webinar next year and then be done with it because that doesn't really help. And then the next thing that I would do is I would put them in a position to demonstrate their expertise that they would want to do anyway. But all we're going to do now is record it. And so I would get them as a guest on the, you know, e-commerce operations podcast, or I would get them to host a webinar on how to improve your shipping times from three days to two days and do a webinar on that that I would record and it would become a podcast or I would do a, and I would have Q&A after that could be broken down for LinkedIn or I would have them if there was a conference coming up I would have a sat I would host a satellite event and I would spend $25,000 to put on a satellite event at this conference and I would invite 100 people that I wanted to go and I would bring a film crew and audio and I would have them be the speaker of the event and so whatever those examples is that your people would want to do, I would put them in something that they're happy to do anyway. And then you get the recording and then you got to figure out a way to be able to do enough of those types of things, right? You know, doesn't, doesn't, not everyone has to be $25,000 event, right? A webinar is pretty cheap to run. You just need some time being a guest on a podcast. Once you facilitate that someone wants to have you on the podcast, it's cheap to actually get that done. And then you start to accumulate, you know, five, seven, 12 appearances that create a lot of different content that produce assets that give you some initial stuff to run and create traction on. And then the goal is within that period of time, they need to see like, oh, I'm here and I'm speaking and a hundred people are listening to me. And then, oh, I took this video and then someone posted it on LinkedIn for me. And then 3000 people saw it. And these people that I respect commented on it and they start to see that oh wow this is like exactly what i should be doing this is so like what i'm doing is i'm doing i'm just communicating all the things that i know to our customers and they like these things it feels simple but a lot of people that are in these positions like vp of medical education vp of customer success vp of ops whoever sometimes don't aren't exposed to these like really simple opportunities so that's the approach that I have taken before successfully. And that's what I would recommend for you. Awesome. Thanks. All right. One of our regulars, Omar, you're up. 
demand gen is getting lit. I remember the good old days where like there'd be a queue of like one or two people. I for, I, I almost forgot the question. See, Megan. <laughs> Content distribution. Hint, hint. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Chris. When are we going to drop the NFTs? Because I'm I'm waiting for that to be minted. I'm just want your face on a digital placard in my house, so my wife and I can see oh, it man. every morning we have our coffee. So I'm just I'm waiting for that to be minted. So <laughs> it's not that's even not the, the question, radar, by the way. <laughs> your your hesitancy and pause makes me think that there might be an NFT drop. I don't know. Uh, I'd say quite the contrary <laughs> at the moment. So be, question, Matt. We're working oh, on a couple up? things, but it's not an NFT. <laughs> Awesome, man. Yeah, so I have an interesting question to ask you. I think I know the answer to it, but it's always good to kind of go back to principles and, and foundations. So let's pretend that you were dropped into a new company, okay? And mm-hmm. you have access to the customers, the messaging up when all that stuff is taken care of. CEO says, we only have one option for content. So what's the content that you decide to create, type of content? And then how do you go about distributing it? And you only have two quarters to do this. You have one content type to go with. And then how do you decide to distribute it? I'm doing what we're doing at this exact moment. I'm doing a live event that has Q&A with an audience that goes into a podcast that gets distributed on LinkedIn, that gets repackaged for YouTube, and then gets repackaged for TikTok. That's what I would do. I don't know if that fits into the parameters of your question, but it's literally one content type that just gets broken down into a lot of different distribution channels. That's the move. That's that's what I thought. I just I wanted to check to see if anything changed. No, but it's good to kind of go through that that sort of types of flow that you have. Your main thing is that focusing on on the live events. That's where it's where it's hinged on, correct? One hundred percent. And the reason just to add some color for people is because the audience tells me what they want to know. And that means that a lot of other B2B marketers want to know too. And so the like market insights that i get are valuable it also i also know that the content that what people these people want to know is what other b2b marketers want to know and it also creates a sense of community like i a lot of you i see your faces i interact with you a lot i've met some of you and so i think that that's there's just a lot of valuable touch points in that that you don't get in other ways got it let me dig in just a, real quick because I was just kind of looking back at my year, just thinking about like, what would I have done differently, right? And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we did was we did live events, but we mainly focused on webinars. We did about 13 of them. And what was nice is that towards the end, we got into a rhythm. We figured out a couple of webinar themes that work very well. And when we distribute them, I mean, they've just been going gangbusters in terms of you know capturing new leads, but new leads for people to learn about the company digest new content. And then, hey, lo and behold, they some of them say, hey, actually, we have this problem. Like, we'd love to talk to you, right? Mm-hmm. The thing that I realized, and I'm wondering what your thoughts is, I don't want to call it a mistake, but I feel that going with the webinar route, the mistake that I made was each webinar had to have like its own theme and title. It had to have a topic, right? And And you can only do this like once every few weeks. And I feel that maybe the thing that I should have done, which requires more risk, it's a little bit more vulnerable, is going to the weekly live events, kind of like an office hours, kind of like essentially what, you, what you've done with Demand Gen Live. And rather than focusing on like a webinar with presentation or, or anything like that, have the, the types of influencers that our customers want to hear from and just say, hey, 
this Tuesday. This is the, the speaker. Here's the topic. No slides. Come in and we're going to have firesides. And I feel like that could have been much better because the cadence would have been weekly versus every every month. And it would have been less production on the buildup to the event and more focus on producing the, the assets after the event. Does that make sense? And, and do you agree? Oh, yeah, it does. This goes the title of this episode is going to have to be something about unlearning all the outdated B2B like marketing things, right? So the reason that you set up the webinars like that is because you wanted to have a catchy topic that you had enough time to promote so that you could collect registrations that would eventually be leads, right? That's kind of like a core webinar flow where you're going to do one every two weeks, four weeks or further for that reason, because you need time for promotion to drive registrations. Instead, if you were doing it more on an office hours or standing meeting, you might get less attendance for the first couple, but you have a more rolling basis and you have something that you can build on. So what I would do if I were you is I would just start adding that into the mix and see what you get for feedback, right? Like the first demand gen live that Katano and I did almost two years ago now, 18 months ago, I think there was 19 people there. I yeah. think that was my hesitancy at first, which was, I mean, we accomplished what, what I wanted, which is get to a point where we had a large enough platform that our customers would say, or not customers, our prospective customers in the market would say, yeah, I would love to go on Gen Times like podcast or webinar. But I think I should have been a little bit more brave to say, hey, we're going to do it live. There's not going to be a lot of people, but look for people who, let's say, uh, like a, a non-customer who's an influencer, that would be understanding and say like, yeah, I would love to come on, even if it's like 10 people, at least I can help those 10 people. Versus me, I, I think I was a little bit more concerned to say, I got to build it to a certain point, And then it's more valuable for like a guest to come on. I should have just started small and been okay with that. Totally. Yeah. I go on an event occasionally where there's like six people there um, and I'm pumped to do it. Some of my best ever recorded content are when there's like less than 20 people on an event. And so I look at it a different way than most people. It's like, I can be way more specific about who's in this room, right? If it's only six SaaS founders, then I'm not going to go through my whole like big, broad, big company marketing pitch. If they're all series A founders, I can be a lot more specific. And so, yeah, it's also, it's another thing to unlearn that like live events, the KPI of whether an event is successful or not is how many people attend. It's just like another one of the quantity sort of like things to unlearn. Like we need more leads. We need more webinar registration. We need more website traffic, more, more, more. Not really. Yep. I hear you. <laughs> cool. But yeah, I think you should, before the end of the year, you should work one of those in there. And if even five people show up, then you got something you can build off of. Chris, I would, thank pick, you. I would try I and get a guest there. That's going to bring a couple people. Absolutely. You got Absolutely. it. Thanks buddy. Thank Good you, man. Appreciate it. See you soon. Always a pleasure. Thanks Let so me know much. about the NFT drop, man. There's some, something in cooking in my brain. We'll uh, update it with you later. I'll let you know, Omar. I'm, I'm your homie. <laughs> All right. I promised Warsam that I would ask a question on his behalf. He's going to listen to the podcast tomorrow when we drop this episode. He said, how can I best leverage customer success stories and videos um, right now, they're just sitting on our website and the sales team just keeps asking me for more and more videos, but we have a ton. They're just not being leveraged. Any recommendations? Also, we have over 200 customers and do you recommend framework or criteria for choosing which customers are the right ones for case studies or video testimonials? 
So the way that I look at this is you need to analyze your messaging and then define like what are the key points that are in the message. And then you need to map that back to what a concept called reasons to believe. And then in reasons to believe, you can use a lot of different types of data or materials to support that message. And so, for instance, in one of our, like I'll go to the medical device one, one of our claims was ICU admissions from the emergency room, which is beneficial to the hospital. It saves them a ton of money. And the reasons to believe that we have are this clinical trial that shows that this is what happened, which is a pretty nice piece of evidence. And we also have a case study from this hospital that's like you that did it and their ICU admissions went down by 24%. And so it's not about, we don't need a hundred different case studies. We just need the right stories to support the important messages that we have. And so it's define what those messages are, analyze what evidence that you have to support those messages and look at and then think about the tier and the quality of the evidence right so like it's different medical and pharmaceutical than other things but for us like randomized clinical trials number one like some type of observational study would be number two like one single customer's case study would be number three like a testimonial would be number four and you can go down to the the quality of the evidence of whether or not someone believes something that's the recommendation here. And then when your sales team is, I'm trying to address this objection, then they know which one to use. And it's, I'm trying to sell to people that are this size in financial services, then I know that this is the one that I should use. And so that would be my recommendation is not to go for volume, but to be precise about what stories the the case studies are telling and how those relate to your like overall messaging all right all right nelson your time has come you submitted several questions start with a couple <laughs> i did i was a little bit greedy do you have a preference for which one no i trust you so one argument for lead gen that i often hear is how on earth can marketing convert people who are aware of you, you know, because of your content or social events, website reviews, whatnot. So in other words, a lot, what a lot of the intent data folks are doing or ABM saying, hey, these people are kind of interested in you and therefore now we should go annoy them to buy. So the question is, how do you convert those people without, yeah, going in and intruding on them and doing telemarketing, the email spam, and the mm -hmm. whole LinkedIn spam. So like, how do you then, what's that step to kind of get them to speak to sales, to come to the website and submit a demo request? Everyone that's listening to this podcast afterwards can imagine how you would feel differently about me and my company if we did most likely what your company is doing right now, which is looking at intent data and then basically spamming people. And so like, we don't do that, which is why people continue to come to events every week, listening to the podcast, doing the LinkedIn content, because after you like my LinkedIn post, I'm not sliding into your DM asking for a meeting. And so I think part of it is that we need to think differently about what business development is, right? 
like I've produced content a lot, which creates a lot of trust and credibility and awareness and consideration and education and word of mouth and a lot of these good things. And then occasionally, because I interact and I listen and I meet people, and then there's a CMO that before was a VP and I met her and she was like, I really trying to be a CMO. And then six months later, she becomes a CMO and I send her a message that says, Hey, congratulations. I remember when you were over here and you said you wanted to be a CMO. I'm glad you reached your goal. And then she says, yeah, actually I was wondering if we want to work, if we should be working together, let's set up a meeting. It's just like being a human, not like, and I wasn't even going for a meeting. You know what I mean? I was just saying, Hey, like, congratulations. I think we just need to think differently about like, that we're going out and hunting our prospects and getting meetings and doing all the stuff that's like old school. Um, so I think it comes through being thoughtful, through personalization, through helping people, through focusing on true business outcomes like revenue, not meetings or things like that. That's what I got for you. That's great. Now, part two of that, another... Actually, this one ties into what I think Sydney posted today, which is there seem to be some folks who don't understand that that method doesn't work. And that got me thinking, well, why don't they understand that method works? Like if, you know, they're looking at revenue and they're looking at pipeline they're looking at pipeline quality and efficiency. So I guess then the, the other question is to what extent does lead gen quote unquote work? Or is it because there's some mixture of, typically demand gen and lead gen that demand gen can um, wash out the bad or, you know, what, you know, what's your take there? Maybe they're just not looking at the right metrics. They're not looking at revenue and pipeline. I think there's two (laughs) things here. One is that I think people feel and know that it's not working because they're not hitting their goals, but they don't know what else to do instead. So they keep doing the same stuff. Right. And so they realize that there's a problem, but they don't know what the solution is. So their solution is we need to send more emails. We need to buy more tech. We need to add more headcount. We need more. We need to hire this outsourced SDR firm. We need to run more, spend more money on ads. Right. And so they just add more to an already inefficient, not working strategy, which is what a lot of companies do because they have a lot of money. So they they just scale things that are not really working to begin with. And so that's one of the ways, right? And then the second one is that it's not working, but it's blended within something that is working. So they don't see that the lead gen component specifically isn't working. This is uh, incredibly prevalent in larger companies. And then smaller companies look at larger companies and are like, oh, Salesforce is running ebook campaigns. Oh, SAPs running a gated, like, come get a quote ad on LinkedIn. Oh, whoever, some, some investment banking firms running this, like, fluffy, like, I don't even think you can call it thought leadership. It's just literally just like a fluffy video on LinkedIn ads or whatever. We should do those things. And what they don't see, it's not working for the big company either. The big company just has enough brand that they don't notice it. There's enough demand, the category is so mature that buyers are coming in other ways through dark social or whatever and actually buying. And then they just have these lead gen programs running millions of dollars a year, pushing people through their big marketing automation machine, creating enough attribution where marketing will be able to take credit for stuff. And then they just don't see it. 
And then lastly, I think that's a great answer. Thank you, Chris. Lastly, um, one thing that I've heard from a lot of people who are sympathetic to proper marketing or, or, or demand gen, aka Refine Labs methodology, is that, well, you know, they've got the lead gen model in place. And then there's some folks in the company that have a vested interest in keeping that model. And there are people in the company who have a quota and, and who have commission. And so if you don't give them the that type, you know, the the uh, those buyers to kind of go out and annoy, then because of the quota and commission, then they won't perform and they won't get paid. So what do you say to the folks who say, well, you know, the goal of marketing is to ensure that SDRs get paid and perform, quote unquote. So we got to run the lead gen model. Otherwise, yeah, what about the SDRs? So what would you say about that? I would say, what about the customer? All we care about is whether our people in our company are hitting our goals, not at all, whether or not it's creating a good buyer experience, whether it's helping people or anything. And companies just get so caught up in like, what's in it for me? How is this going to work in our, through all of the constraints in our company? I know that the world is changing, but we're not changing fast enough. So the world's going to have to change for us. And it just ends up in a place where you become less and less customer focused. And so the thing that I would start with was like, and what everyone should start with is what does our customer want? And then you can reverse engineer what you should be doing. And this is like something that's so simple, but like, and when you, when you do it, you should start with a blank slate. You don't have to do it that often. It shouldn't change that frequently but probably at least once every year to two years, you should be looking at this and you should think about like literally start. If we had a blank slate of how we would handle our customer experience when a buyer wants to buy, what would we do? Do we still need that automated email sequence from our SDRs that we've been doing for the past three years? Could we do it a different way? Is there a new technology that's emerged? Is there new buyer expectations? Is there a different way to get this done? Has our strategy changed? So again, it's just, it's unlearning outdated B2B marketing and revenue practices that are centered around leads and attribution and facilitating low intent outbound sales. That was awesome. Thank you, Chris. All right. I saved you for, for last because you're, you're a good closer, but Chris, you want to add any closing thoughts? It's going to be tough to to beat this it was great nelson I'm never gonna forget this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm gonna like when we get off here i'm gonna think about what the title of this episode should be but it's pretty clear and i think the theme here and it's interesting that we kind of like hit on it from a bunch of different angles is like sometimes and this is in business and life i'm not here to get philosophical but sometimes you need to forget the things that you've been taught in order to move forward and so as I've continued to challenge and question the best practices and the best practices are nothing more than what technology vendors have created and put in eBooks for the past 10 years that have then got driven into the market through analyst firms. That's literally what the best practices are. There's nothing more to it. And so, and I just look at those and I'm like, are these best practices or are they, are they, is it biased advice that came through these sources? If I was going to do this and I was going to look at it on my own and I was going to look at it through my customer's lens, would I do it the same way? And the answer is usually no. And so it's just challenging people like the marketers that 
are going to be the marketers in the future and are going to drive these types of changes and just be the real winners are the ones that that focus on the customer solely. And so we'll leave it at that. Gave someone or, or hopefully a lot of people some inspiration to kind of think differently about some of the things that they're going to go in and try some new things and experiment. We are moving right forward. So coming up here, we have another Demand Gen Live next week, and then we will be off for the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, as I will be in Costa Rica. And we're coming up on 2022, which means that we're going to go back at some point. It'll probably be in December, but we'll go back to my 2021 predictions, and then we'll start making some 2022 predictions, and we'll see how right or wrong some of my predictions were, and we'll see what's going into 2022. And it's funny because I did this in going into 2020 and a lot of the recommendations were right. I think a lot of them were spot on, but I'm feeling less confident in 2021, but we'll see. I haven't looked at them in a long time. So with that, everyone, appreciate all of you. Looking forward to seeing you next week and have a great night. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.